You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 19, today we're in Monforte de Lemos. He's a, he's a killer. He's a killer. You have a climbers, you have a sprinters, you have uh, domestic riders, and you, then you have a winners, and you have a killers. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and Magnus is one of them. Well, we opened there with the calm before the storm. That was the start in Tapia, the, as the riders rolled out to a ripple of applause and a, a dog barking in the background. A bit of slow radio there to start off this episode. And the voice we then heard was from the finish, and it was Juan Magarati, the sports director. Making a shocking allegation. Oh, well, yeah, I guess. I don't think he was being literal. Oh. Um, he was meaning in the context of a bicycle race, which is what we just watched. And we watched his rider at EF, he has Magnus got a bit Court. Of a, Magnus Court does have a bit of a, bit of a serial killer sort of air and, and tone to his voice, hasn't he? Yeah. He's sort Very of Stig Larsson he, kind of. He is. I don't know if I said this. Um, they better not get our Scandinavian countries mixed up there, Daniel. But I, I don't know if I said this the other night, but during the Tour de France, uh, Francois Tomaso, of course, Uh, described Michael Morkov as the the ice bucket to Mark Cavendish's bottle of champagne, uh, which is a very good analogy. Um, yeah, Magnus Core, icy cool situation he found himself in today, going for his third. He was station. the ice bucket to um, well, Wilson Craddock's bottle of yeah. bud. Yeah, today. that's kind of that's kind of it was the other way around. It was reversed today in a way, wasn't Wilson it? Wilson Craddock, who I don't know if you noticed his celebration was significantly more exuberant than Magnus Court's. He lifted his bike in the air, then he attempted to lift up Magnus Court. I, he may have twinged his back at that, but yeah, he was ecstatic. He was delighted. A great day for that team. A cracking stage, wasn't it, Daniel? I mean, one that maybe didn't promise too much on paper, but what? And there were no implications for GC. We're not going to talk about GC today, but what a, what a cracking race that was. Yeah, and uh, the Vuelta has produced a lot of these stages in the last few years. Partly because a lot of the terrain is difficult to read well, particularly if you're going off the Vuelta road, but which is not a very good guide at the best of times. But and these are unfamiliar roads for a lot of people. They're not, you know, in, when we go to the Tour de France, um, pretty much all the directors and to a certain extent the, the riders have raced on those routes before, know the terrain inside out. In the Vuelta, it's, well, it's, it's a hillier country, generally hillier. And when you go to places like Galicia, There are sort of traps and, and unexpected obstacles and hurdles and, and difficulties that crop up along the way and they defy confound expectations, don't they? Are we in Galicia now? Have we, we crossed are. over? Did we start in Galicia, Galicia this morning? Oh, we were in Galicia this morning. No, we? we started in Asturias yeah, this morning. I, yeah, sorry, I misheard you there. Rich, you would be mistaken for thinking we are not in Galicia because a heresy has co been yes, committed on this table. This. We're drinking yes. Estrella beer, which is what we should be drinking in Galicia, but it's the wrong Estrella. It's mm. the Estrella Dam, which is the, the Barcelona Estrella. We've been drinking Estrella Galicia throughout the Vuelta until we get to Galicia. It's, it's weird. It's like you can't get a pint of Kilkenny in Kilkenny. You really can't. Uh, anyway, thrilling stage. We're going to talk about that in a moment. A bit of a varied menu um, today. We've got interviews a bit later on with Michael McStorer, who clears up 
The Scottish connection. It only reaffirms it, actually. And Yukiya Arashiro, the Japanese writer, writing his 15th Grand Tour, which is certainly a, a record for a Japanese writer by some distance. We'll hear from him a bit later on. But before that, let's cross over to Not Watford. Um, Lionel Burney uh, with the tale of the Etapa. Forget the good, the bad and the ugly, this was a stage for the Magnificent Seven, a collection of very strong, committed riders who held off the peloton to fight it out for victory at the end of a fast, furious and aggressive Stage 19. In the final kilometre, EF Education Nippo played their numerical advantage in the seven-man group to perfection, setting up Magnus Court for his third stage win of the race, matching Primoz Roglic and Fabio Jakobsen. It was another day shaped by a big break, and another day when the break wasn't allowed too much leeway, and that meant full-on racing all day. With 60 kilometres to go, Nelson Oliveira of UAE Team Emirates attacked the break briefly, and that started a whittling down process up at the front. In the bunch, Team DSM did a lot of the early chasing, hoping to set up a sprint for Alberto Dainese, and when they eased off, Bike Exchange, working for Michael Matthews, took over. But in truth, the bunch never really got organised. There wasn't the same number of riders or the commitment to match the breakaway. With 35 kilometres to go, Quinn Simmons of Trek Segafredo attacked, and Oliveira bridged across to him, and they were chased by Andreas Kron of Lotto Sudal and Lawson Craddock of EF Education. And that led to our magnificent seven. Simmons, Oliveira and Kron were joined by Andrea Bagioli of De Koenig Quickstep, Anthony Rue of Groupama, who won a stage of the Welter way back in 2009, and crucially the two EF Education riders in pink, Magnus Court and Lawson Craddock. The break was working extremely well together. It was a textbook example of group riding. Smooth, steady, but fast rotation with everyone seeming to pull their weight. It had to be that way because their advantage always looked tenuous, hovering around 30 seconds over the bunch, which was now led by the rather tired looking bike exchange. Over the last 30 or so kilometers, the momentum swung one way, then the other. At one point, the break looked like they had it in the bag, then it looked to be in favor of the bunch catching them. With 16 kilometres to go, Team DSM came back to the front to take over the chase, and they did close it down to around 20 seconds with just over 10 kilometres to go, but it was too little too late, because amazingly the brakes stretched their advantage back up again as they headed towards the finish. With 3k to go, it was back up to 30 seconds again, and they worked really well all the way to the kilometre to go kite, by which time Lawson Craddock went to the front to keep things under control for court. There was a magnificent shot of the bunch heading round the final corner just as the peloton swung round the previous corner at the top of the screen, and by then the breakaway riders must have known they had it amongst themselves. Quinn Simmons opened up the sprint a bit too early as it turned out in hindsight because Court had the strength in his legs to get win number three. Oliveira took second with Simmons third. Dainese of DSM led in the bunch for eighth place 18 seconds later. The other notable event of the day was a crash inside the last 50 kilometres which left Antomarche Wontigobert's Louis Menkes on the ground and unfortunately for him he was unable to continue. A rough end to the welter after he'd doggedly ridden his way into 10th place overall yesterday. Now back to Richard and Daniel in Spain. Tomorrow I'm off to Cornwall for the start of the Tour of Britain so that's the last from me for this welter. Enjoy the final weekend. You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rights that matter? Never again. 
Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Now, over the course of the welter, we've been hearing from Asker Jurkendrup, who is a sports scientist and nutritionist working with the Jumbo Visma team. And we asked him about why this continuous glucose monitoring technology is currently not allowed in competition by the UCI, except for the diabetics who ride for Team Novo Nordisk, of course. And we asked whether he thinks that's likely to change in future. I think the biggest advantage really in in competition is that you just make it a little bit safer. You will be able to avoid hypoglycemia. You will be able to avoid kind of bonking and being like completely without fuel for your brain on on the bike. That's something that uh, that I see as something that we can achieve in races. And and actually, I think that's going to re- make races just a little bit uh, a little bit safer. In terms of performance, I think it's it's really too early to say whether uh, knowing that will directly be able to affect performance in in races. Well, Daniel, at the finish uh, in his press conference, Magnus Court said that he feared that he was in a dream and that he might wake up at some point. Um, he's not given to over exuberance. He he is icy cool, and that's probably served him really well for at least a couple of his stage wins, um, but. It's, we have seen this in the Vuelta before, haven't we? One person I was speaking to at the end joked that this would be the, the death knell for his career because we've often seen riders perform really, really well here and hit a sweet spot. Ma- uh, Matteo Trenton springs to Thomas mind. Thomas Motsinski. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And then um, n- not do anything ever he again. He left everything on a dance yeah. floor in, in, on the disco in Madrid. <laughs> exactly. I personally witnessed that performance. That was the greatest performance of that Vuelta from him. He'd won three stages or two stages, but yeah, his most impressive feats were were accomplished on the dance floor. At well, the let's end of look Vuelta out for party. Magnus Court on Sunday evening. But he, uh, well, he's always been a very highly regarded rider who can win in various situations. He's fast. Um, and versatile and he's always been a a very good rider but I don't think anybody as we came into this race would have predicted that he would be a three-time stage winner here no but we really should have because he has well he's won at the Vuelta before he won in his first Vuelta España he won two stages on that occasion in the last week in fact so you know he showed there that he's someone who tends to if anything, get better towards the end of, of a race like the Vuelta. And on that occasion, he'd the opportunities came almost by surprise. Here, I guess he would have had a lot less freedom, a lot less latitude had Hugh Carthy but still been in the race. That was EF Education First leader going into the Vuelta España. He's a strange rider, isn't he? In some respects, he reminds me of Tim Wellens in a completely different way in the sense that his wins tend to happen. And this is no, or they have tended to happen and uh, this is not to belittle them in any way but when the 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 big boys in in whatever category he's been winning whether it's you know at the the top of a steep climb as he did in Cuyera or in a bunch sprint or in a breakaway today 
they've either been not at the race or marooned back in another group in the peloton. That has been the case. I think he's better than that, and I think he will win bigger races going forward in his career. This Vuelta will probably give him, give him a huge amount of confidence. But you know, there's some curious things in his Palmares in his career, like the fact, for example, that he's only won one one day race, uh, Clásica de Almería. That is interesting because a lot of people are talking about him as a contender for the World Championships just because he's in form. And it, and it's a course that should should suit him. If you're the Danish national coach, Rich, you've got Mads Pedersen, Magnus Court, and Kasper Asgreen. How are you going to play those cards in Belgium? Well, I think I, I think Magnus Court might be the quickest, although Mads Pedersen is 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 pre- pretty quick too. It's a sort of course where Pedersen could could still be there he, he, he has a, a chance that's a difficult difficult one you, you sprung that on me um, well, sh- well, Daniel should we hear a, a little bit about how EF Education First played their cards today from Juanma Garate who at the start of the episode tonight said that Magnus Court was a killer obviously like everyone here you know that it was not possible but at the same time I saw that the guys riding they, they blew up you know and they uh, one team blew up then another team came that team they couldn't made it and then DSM again came back, but they were already tired from the effort before. So at the end, uh, with Magnus there in the break was the key. And uh, I asked him to do a really long pulse in the last 10 kilometers. And I think that made the difference. You saw the, 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 the time cap, time cut was uh, going, growing up again in the last 10 kilometers. That's why, because uh, he was riding full gas in front. So, yeah, uh, it's difficult to believe at 40 or 60 or even 100 k's to go that they could made it, but at the end they made it. We talked about the final sprint before, we analysed that in the bus, they knew what they had to do in, in case that we arrived with a bad sprint. But uh, when you are in this situation, first you need to think about to arrive and then how, to, how you do the sprint, right? So that's why we, we put all the energy in, in Lausen to try to t- keep riding, to arrive to, until the last corner. And then uh, it was up to Magnus and then I put some pressure on him, obviously. Like, okay, no, you need to finish this out and, uh, because all the job they did for you, man, you, you cannot do mistakes now. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a killer <laughs> again. Well, Richard, it was a real team victory, wasn't it? And we'll, we'll hear from Lawson Craddock, who really provided the assist in a minute. But I also noticed, I don't know if you did, that um, on the, well, as the, the, the group, Magnus Court's group, rounded the final bend and then the peloton was not far behind. I also noticed an EF Education first rider, I think it was Tom Scully, on the front of the peloton, sort of disrupting the chase and just making absolutely bring them back. sure. Well, no, absolutely sure that the peloton didn't hunt them down. But Craddock was absolutely superlative, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, we should say a little bit about the stage because it was extraordinary. I mean, we saw... We don't we don't see many dull stages these days, and you know you spoke to Matt Winston at the start. We'll maybe hear a bit from him later on, but they're they're disruptors, aren't they? And the, they come into stage like this with a real plan to well to try and win the stage, and they're trying to win as many stages as they can. Clearly, and they had a man up in the break, but still they put their team on the front to try and bring it back. Presumably for Dainese, their sprinter, who didn't in fact win the the bunch sprint in the end. Um, and the the group, the, the big group out front, never had very much time at all. But it was, um, it looked like it was coming back. It looked they they had them in their sights. They were they were after that big push by first DSM and then bike exchange. The gap was just twenty five seconds with thirty four kilometers to go, and they were going up this kind of motorway drag. It was one of these really deceptively hard climbs. Um, Quinn Simmons attacked, and Rui Oliveira, who we'll hear from in a moment, went with him. Maybe paid for that effort in the end. 
and it was just a kind of a, a slow death march. It, it was a, it was a, it was a, a moment in the race where the race really was decided, and it was Simmons and Oliveira who went clear and had quite a gap on a chasing group that that formed from the chasers. Most of the chasers at that point dropped back because the bunch was all, could almost touch them, but a few of them went forward, including um, Lawson Craddock and um, Magnus Court, and bridged across to Oliveira and Quinn and. And then those those seven riders in that group really did commit in a very impressive way. Um, and some of the biggest engines in the peloton, in the best form, were down the road. I think that was actually crucial. You know, we talked the other day about the how the Vuelta España field, okay, there are more sort of classics riders, more powerhouses than there would typically be in a Tour of the Basque Country or Volta Catalunya. But it, it is not the Tour de France. There are not three or four world-class rulers in every team and you know DSM were pulling with Michael Storer and Roman Bardet who between them are, are trying to sort out who's going to win the, the mountains competition funny to see Bardet uh, joining that chase and really committing to it in the way that he did and it was a bit of a kind of new versus old cycling clash I thought because had there not been a UAE rider in the front group in Oliveira they would have chased for Trenton had Anthony Rue not been up there for FTJ, they would have chased for Arnaud Demar, who was there, I think. So that would have changed the equation completely. And it was interesting to look at a team like FTJ, who had Anthony Rue there, who didn't really have much of a chance of winning from that group. But his very presence meant that his team wasn't chasing. Whereas DSM did have a rider there, but chased anyway. Yeah, and they also sent Nico Dentz back eventually. And Nico Dentz, who's well, a, a German rider who's not won a whole lot, but he has won races. Uh, I think he won a stage in the Tour of Slovakia a couple of years ago in a sprint. He beat some fast guys there. And he, he won the Tour of the Vendée once as well. And he's also a good lead-out man. So he's no slouch, but I think they rightly decided that their best chance was with Dainese and you know, credit to them for committing because Dainese did win the bunch sprint. That wasn't the case for the other team that committed um, bike exchange they committed later bike exchange and Michael Matthews was well adrift in the bunch sprint he was shall we hear from uh, a couple more people at the finish um, who were in that front group and, and real protagonists there was a very American flavour after there were a lot of yeehaws weren't there um, after the finish coming from that kind of thing um, coming from well, one of the, the winners, really, of the day, Lawson Craddock, who's from t- Houston, Texas, but also from, not Quinn Simmons, but someone who looks very like Quinn Simmons. We've noticed him <laughs> over the we last few days. a couple of days ago that that looks like Quinn Simmons' Quinn dad. Simmons, yeah, a, a 45, 50-year-old Quinn Simmons, and it turns out that Quinn Simmons' father and, and in fact, mother are here at the Vuelta España. They are following him around, and his father is the Quinn Simmons doppelganger um, with the same beard, just a few more grey hairs in it. And, yeah, he was very exuberant and, and almost euphoric at the finish, wasn't he? He was trying to sort of um, get around the barriers to see his son and congratulate his son. He was absolutely thrilled with uh, Simmons's third. third place. So, Rich, let's hear from the Americans, Lawson Craddock and Quinn Simmons. Yeah, I mean, it's when you have a leader like Magnus, it's easy to sell yourself out because you... You really believe in him, and that's such a big part of the sport is 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 having that belief. And uh, you know, if we didn't think that Magnus could win or we could make it to the line, we we really wanted off, and uh, we all bought in. And yeah, it was a definitely difficult day, physically and mentally, tactically, all of the things. And uh, 
yeah, we pulled it off by the skin of our teeth, but we did it. <laughs> when there's a will, there's a way, and uh, we had great collaboration in the breakaway for the last 20K. The 100K before that, not so much. A lot of attacking and, and not everyone doing their fair share of their work, but we knew if we could get the right combination of guys off the front, we, we really had a chance, and I'm sure it was extremely fast in the peloton all day as well, and uh, when it's like that, it, it is difficult to pull back 30 seconds at the at the finish. So tough day. Uh, we had this day circled again, and uh, yeah, pretty special. We capitalized. You know, Magnus is tactically brilliant, and uh, you know, actually, there was a moment about 50k to go where we thought, don't think it's possible. Only one minute, and but you know, I guess I think it was really just a, a full gas day um, from start to finish, no matter where you were in the race, and and that that also you know combined with the fact that it's stage 19 makes it you know, really difficult to control anything. And uh, yeah, <laughs> legs are gonna feel it today and tonight for sure, but I mean, it's pretty special we uh, we pulled it off. Yeah, um, I don't know, it's hard to say. Magnet, he's proved how fast he is already twice this race. I know I can't beat these guys with pure speed, so if I start in front of them and make it a long sprint, I have a chance, but obviously he was stronger than me today. Super disappointing after so much workload, but yeah, I think for my first Grand Tour, to be able to do that on stage 19 at only 20, you know, I'll be back. Uh, well, you saw when I attacked on the last climb, it was some guys were playing a bit Masters tactics. It was almost like being in the U.S. They were just trying to mess the break up, so we had to get rid of them. And then once we had the seven of us who were fully committed, it was nice because, yeah, we all knew we had a shot and no one played any games. Well, that was the Americans, Daniel. What about the Portuguese, Rui Oliveira? Um, he made that big effort to bridge across to, to Quinn Simmons, and maybe, maybe that was what cost him in the end. I watched the, you know, the final kilometers so very closely, and he he knew exactly what to do. Get on Magnus Court's wheel, um, follow him. I mean, Lawson Craddock was leading it out. Um, everything that that watching with hindsight is interesting, of course, but everything Magnus Court did was kind of perfect he was always in the right place I, I thought that um, Bagioli might be a threat he's fast as well but he, he found himself out of position really um, whereas uh, Court and Oliveira behind him were, were in, the, in the right place and Oliveira ran him pretty close and he was both sort of exhilarated and disappointed at the finish and I thought Rich that Oliveira was definitely destined to win because twins tw one twin Always wins in Monforte de Lemos, where, where we are now, in Galicia. Well, a twin did win last time the Vuelta came here in 2016. It was Simon Yates' first ever World Tour stage victory. But alas, Rui Oliveira, twin of Ivo Oliveira, who also rides for UAE Team Emirates, did not win today. Took a while to get your, your breath back there after that. It was, a, it was a breathless kind of final hour, wasn't it? I... Uh yeah, I never thought I would uh, the break this last break would uh, would stick to the end. I was completely, completely empty from all the efforts and all the attacks I made because when the bunch was less than a minute, 50k to go, I just went all out so I could just have some yeah time in front. But yeah, kilometers it weren't, and I just thought in the last uh, maybe 5k that I would have a chance. And I knew I had to stay in Magnus' wheel. Uh, that's what I did. Maybe if I launched my sprint a little bit earlier, I might would have a chance. I had better legs than I thought. But, yeah. Today I'm a bit disappointed, but tomorrow I'll be proud for what I did today. 
I mean, there were two teams chasing, some really strong riders chasing full on, and the gap was just staying about a minute, or sorry, half a minute. You all seemed fully committed. Was it? Did it feel like everybody in the group was really kind of committed fully to it? Yeah. After the after we we uh, we reached the top, like uh, the last 25k would be pretty much downhill. Uh, we were like seven guys. We all we all commit 100 uh, percent. Yeah, and especially Craddock, obviously push a little bit more than than all of us because he had the Magnus that could win. You know, so yeah, it was uh, it was the second place. And uh, yeah, but I want more for sure. Did it feel just like the fastest team time trial you've ever been part of? Oh, definitely. I think I I went beyond my my limits that I didn't know I, I, I had. If I see my average power for the day, I know it was completely something crazy. And still, after almost 200 k's, being able to be in the break and uh, do this result. I'll be proud tomorrow. I'll let you go and download your power and, and I hope that you recover from the shock of that to be able to race again tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow is another uh, hard day, I will say. And yeah, GC for sure will be there. Uh, but I already made my Vuelta. This second place is uh, something really important. Yeah, I will, uh, I'll just try to recover from today and I just want to go to my family in two days. That's said PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Calm, which is a mental wellness app to give you the tools to improve the way you feel. And the app can help improve your sleep quality, reduce stress and anxiety, or improve your focus. And I'm sure I'm not alone. In fact, I know I'm not alone in saying that over the last year or 18 months or more, the stresses and strains of the pandemic and all of the uncertainty associated with the way the world has been for the last couple of years has meant that I found it difficult to unwind at the end of the day sometimes and I've needed a bit of help. Now sometimes I listen to podcasts but I sometimes find them a little bit overstimulating just before bedtime. I mean not this one obviously but the Calm app has some sleep stories and they are really good for just leading you gently towards the land of nod i personally was a little bit skeptical about this before i tried the calm app i wasn't too sure that listening to the ocean waves would really work for me so the sleep stories are absolutely perfect and uh, they just help me unclench my jaw relax my shoulders and take a deep breath and sometimes that's all you need just a reminder to breathe in deeply and breathe out deeply and just feel that sensation of unwinding before trying to go to sleep. So if that sounds like something that might help you, go to calm.com slash cycle, and you can get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming and new content added every week. There are over 100 million people around the world using Calm to take care of their minds, helping them to sleep more and stress less and live a little bit better. So for listeners of the Cycling Podcast, Calm is offering a limited time promotion, 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash cycle. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash cycle for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. Calm.com slash cycle and the details are in the show notes. Daniel, two teams that we've been talking about, Team DSM and Bike Exchange, both had quite a big part to play in today's stage um, and are 
our discussion on bike exchange followed a, a, a question in our press conference episode the other night from a listener who who felt that that team had, had, had lost its way or lost its identity a little bit. And from what we understand from people in, inside the team, that there, there has been a, a change in, uh, in flavor, if you like, of, of output there. You know, the backstage pass was always a big part of the identity of that team. And that really focused in on the, the humor, the quirkiness, um, the transparency of the team. The focus there seems to be more now on on performance, and it's all got a bit more serious. Um, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but they're not having a good run of things. This is a, a season where they've brought Michael Matthews back into the fold. You know, he's a rider that um, is is we describe him as a winner, but he's a winner who doesn't win win all that much. You know, a very good rider, but, but a risk, a gamble. Incredibly similar in characteristics to Magnus Court Nielsen as well. Right down to the fact that both of them, kind of perversely, are really good time trialists. But you would never have a team working for Magnus Court really in the we way. We haven't that seen that. You don't. This far, you know, no, we? you don't see it. It's that they have, they have a different status somehow. I don't know whether that will change as a result of Magnus Court's performances here. Who knows? But um, yeah, things are not clicking for Bike Exchange, and, and today kind of summed it up, didn't it? They put a lot into that chase. And it didn't work. They did. I mean, these things are very fickle. And DSM had a terrible run for the first six months of the season. Suddenly, everything they touch is turned to gold. They've really got a minus, a Midas touch at the moment. And they, when they, they committed today, they committed absolutely fully um, to the point that they sent Dents back, as I mentioned earlier. And, you know, I think all of their riders who could pull were pulling. And they weren't. You know, as I said, they're not these big sort of shire horses that are built for that. They, they were their climbers that were trying to do the job. And, you know, it's a it's a hollow victory, perhaps. But the fact that Dainese did lead this, the, the bunch home almost vindicated. I think it vindicated, you know, their efforts, really. It was almost beyond their control that Lawson Craddock in particular in that group was incredibly strong. But they all committed so much. So unless can I just throw a, a spanner in the works of that argument? I mean, they, they, they made a. They made a. They asked a lot today of Storer and Bardet. True, that's true. Storer, fan, as we'll hear later, fancies tomorrow, and and they are between them fighting out for the King of the Mountains. It could cost them in that competition. That's true. I, I think the decision today, the way they played it today, showed a lot of confidence and and that word again, commitment. Whereas you could say that Bike Exchange were a bit more tentative in committing, and you know they eventually did, as I said earlier. But if you look at the different status the different statuses of Dainese, who's a, a young sprinter going for his first World Tour stage win, versus Michael Matthews, who's the franchise player at Bike Exchange. Now, you can debate who's faster at the moment and say, well, yeah, Dainese is faster at the moment, so DSM had more reason to pull. But, you know, maybe there is... That was slightly symptomatic of just of things not rolling for Bike Exchange. And, and when things start to go badly or, or less well than, than you think they should, then um, then the confidence is, does drain away, doesn't it? It's and, harder to commit, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, they've got they've got riders in decent form, they've got promising riders, they had a quick rider today in Robert Stannard, who I actually thought was ideal for that break. I remember there was a stage late in the Vuelta last year, in fact, that Magnus Court won. Um, I think it was, it might even have been stage 19, and Robert Stannard was in that group as well and he came pretty close that day and so I thought he was a great candidate today but didn't work out and and you know their luck will change they've got good riders who are they are still getting in breaks 
but uh, I think they'll be asking questions about why it's not working at the moment. Rich, Daniel, I can I just do a live corrections corner? Why would, is it unlikely that Magnus Court would have won stage 19 of last year's Vuelta? He wasn't in the Vuelta. No. Last year's Vuelta. How many stages were in last year's Vuelta? Oh, so, oh no. Okay, so it, was stage, it would have been stage 16. 16, correct. So I thought they had a good option with Stannard today. Um, but they, I guess they will be asking questions. They'll be asking questions of themselves, as teams always do when, when this happens, when they have a barren run. Rich, this morning I asked a few questions of Nick Schultz, who was performing very well earlier in the year, had a, a crash and an injury in the middle of the season, and is trying to ride himself into form here. But I asked him a little bit about morale in the team and, well, what a team does when they're in a situation where things just don't seem to go right for them. Certainly haven't had my best uh, sensations here at this race, uh, but uh, yeah, nonetheless, it was it was all right to be up there in the break, and I feel good up there. Um, not as good as Stora, who uh, seems to be on another planet, um, but that's also good to see. Um, but yeah, it was kind of always destined for doom uh, when we heard that the GC teams or Bahrain were riding behind, so um, it always takes a little stab at the morale when you hear that, and you kind of know, no matter what you do, it's, uh, it's probably not going to be fighting for a result. You said there, it took a bit of a stab at the morale. I mean, how's the morale in the in the team? Um, obviously, the tour, you you guys got very unlucky with the crashes to to um, Simon and um, and it was um, Lucas Hamilton as well, wasn't it? And then here, you know, you've tried a lot and not got the stage win yet. But how is the morale? Yeah, look, the morale's good. Um, we're still chasing after it. You know, there's still two road stages to go. Um, you know, today could potentially suit our characteristics, and we're motivated for that. Um, but yeah, things just haven't quite gone our way. It's not from lack of trying. We've been present. We've, uh, you know, there was that block there in the second week where we really tried every day to uh, to get a win there with uh, Michael Matthews. Um, but uh, yeah, it's not it's not dented our morale. We're still just uh, chipping away and trying to get things to to go our way. But sometimes it just uh, doesn't happen, unfortunately. You've been in the team a while now. Um, you know, people are sort of saying it's a different feel about the team um, at the moment. It's a different. Well, you've not had the luck that you've had in the past. But from the inside, does it feel like the same team it's always been, or are things evolving, changing in a different direction? I think it's a. It's it's definitely the, the core group's still very much the same. So the the atmosphere is, is still um, very Australian and very. Uh, um, well, pretty much what I've been used to at the team. Um, I think for sure it's a little bit of a transition year. Uh, we changed a lot of things. We changed uh, a lot of equipment. Um, a few different, you know, obviously everyone knows what happened uh, last year with, with uh, the sponsorship of the team and stuff. So it, it's a little bit of a transition year, but uh, I don't think uh, it's affected at all the morale of the team. And um, everything uh, on that side of things is running really smoothly. So... Um, yeah, I think it's just a little bit of bad luck in the races that's uh, just accumulating and, you know, sometimes it just takes one win and then the uh, sort of floods floods with uh, good results, but uh, it just hasn't quite clicked for us yet. You've got to come a couple of young Australian guys who people kind of expect to really blossom and become big riders in the next few years. Um, Stannard and, and Lucas Hamilton in particular, I'm thinking of, who are here. Um, I think they've had some bad luck as well recently, last few months or whatever, but what would you say... Again, to you know, fans of the team, um, people who are outside observers about those two guys and where they're at and what we can expect from them in the next few months and years. Yeah, I think uh, I think for sure they're both two big prospects for Australian cycling. Uh, Stenard is potentially like a 
you know, an up-and-coming Michael Matthews-style rider. He can climb really well. He showed that in under-23s when he was climbing with the likes of Vlasov in, in Baby Giro. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think there's he's got prospects to, to win a lot of Grand Tour stages, I think. Um, and then, of course, Lucas is, is a big GC prospect for our team, and um, we've got a lot of faith in him. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, he had a bit of bad luck there in the Tour and uh, separated the, I forget what it was, but something in his shoulder. Um, so he had a bit of a hard road there and it's been a busy schedule and this race has been more about getting um, just a grand tour in his legs um, but I think uh, you know based off his trajectory and the riders he's always ridden against I think he has real potential to, to podium in a grand tour um, and that's something I certainly look forward to, to working with because uh, I've known him a long time um, I raced with his older brother as well so it's a bit of history there and uh, yeah I'm Personally, I've got a lot of faith in him. I think the, the team does too. And just lastly, I keep expecting one of those guys to get in a break and maybe, you know, be contending for a stage. Could today be a good stage for one of those two guys? I guess you personally are maybe a bit tired after yesterday. Yeah, for sure. Um, we've actually got a lot of guys on the team that this stage kind of could, uh, could be good for. Um, a lot depends on the start. It's a really hard start. Um, but we've discussed it a lot and we basically can't work out how it's going to go. Um, but obviously, if there's a breakaway, we'd like to have presence in it. And, you know, ideally, Rob Stanard's a perfect guy for that. And, and even Lucas. Lucas, even though he's a, a climber, GC guy, he's actually really fast. He's got a, he's got a kick on him. Um, and with the uphill start being as hard as it is, uh, that, that suits his characteristics to, to uh, slip in there. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to Science and Sport for their sponsorship of the cycling podcast. If you want 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the code SISCP25. Now, a little reminder that tomorrow, that's Saturday, at 10 a.m. U.S. East Coast time, the latest, the last batch of Vuelta mugs, cappuccino sets and gelato bowls will go on sale. All of them made, lovingly handmade, by Stacy Snyder and all of them raising money for Phoenix Bikes. Go to etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Snyder Ceramics. And from 10 a.m. U.S. East Coast time tomorrow, you'll be able to try and purchase one of these and the money all goes to a great cause. Um, before we go on, let's hear a little clip from James Knox. He had a tumble today. Um, sadly, it was the same crash that saw Louis Menkes have to retire from the race, which is very unfortunate for him because he has been riding well. It's been a bit of a return to form for him. And uh, he was looking at a top 10 place on GC, uh, but he's now out of the race. James Knox came off in the same crash, but got back up and finished okay so hopefully he's okay we'll get a diary entry from him tonight but I thought we'd play a little bit from last night's because the first part kind of sums up the 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 tiredness and the agony I suppose of being two and a half weeks into a race like this and the well the second part about his mum and dad who we bumped into in a petrol station didn't we Daniel um, yeah. it, it just made us laugh to be honest it's got to that point in the race now just overtired. Um difficult to describe if you haven't done a grand tour but yeah just just wasted now no appetite struggling to sleep it's not really pretty is it can't wait 
to get it over and done with, to be honest. Um, sound depressed, don't I? But yeah, it's hard. It's hard sport. Mum and Dad decided to walk up the penultimate, or the last descent, should I say. I don't know why they decided to see me coming downhill, yelling at me to be careful because there's dangerous corners. I mean, kind of made me chuckle because, yeah, just, I've got no idea. But yeah, yeah, it is what it is. So James Knox's mum and dad, they're positioning themselves on a descent in, the, in order to be able to tell him to um, to be safe and uh, not take too many risks, which in itself might have been quite a dangerous Very thing dangerous, to do. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, um, more more of that from James will be our final installment. taking his hand one hand off the bar and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. gesturing very yeah, you yeah. know. No, that will be a final installment of the audio diarist John Bow, uh, Pavel Sivakov, and James Knox to come out next week following the Vuelta. And one of our listeners emailed to say that she really enjoys the Rider Diarist, but she struggled in the last episode to understand what stage they were talking about. So we're going to try and uh, help with that yeah. in the final episode next week. Oops, and. Um, signpost a bit better exactly what stages they're talking about perhaps with some clips from commentary and so on Daniel do you have a daily rog for us well I do Rich remember yesterday <laughs> I do remember yesterday remember yesterday we talked very uh, unusually for us we talked about the team classification well no, we took our cue from Gino Maida who had mentioned it after the stage yesterday and well we discovered that this was the main reason why Bahrain victorious were, were riding yesterday now the team classification I'm just going to consult the, the the standings again it looks as though Bahrain victorious is still four minutes ahead of team Jumbo Visma 15 minutes ahead of Ineos Grenadiers and well just a reminder the team classification is is calculated on the basis of the the top three riders from each team per stage it's not the top three riders from the team on the general classification so it could potentially be up for grabs um what wow well i mean i've said this before i i feel as though more attention more interest should be reserved for the team classification it should be leveraged because it, it could be leveraged. leveraged. It could be quite exciting um, quite often, I think. However, uh, most of the time we ignore it. <laughs> Primoz Roglic, does he ignore it? Or is he reserving the attention uh, that the team classification deserves? Today's Daily Rog. Primoz Roglic on Team Jumbo Visma's four minute, one second deficit in the team classification, here it is. Ah, uh, no, yeah, yeah, like, uh, you know what I mean. For us, this is priority, uh, yeah, uh, trying to have uh, or keeping the red jersey, uh, yeah, still the finish. Like I said, uh, we have to to follow, uh, yes, our goals uh, as they go, and uh, I think also, yeah, the way all the guys are showing uh, their level, yes, when we can, we, if we can continue going good, uh, yes, also then uh, good results. Daniel, was that Primoz Roglic or was that you doing an impression of Primoz Roglic? It's hard to tell these days. <laughs> yeah, no, no. You know what I mean, huh? Uh, no, um, that, I, I don't really know what to Daniel. make of that. Yes, no, I don't know. That's Primoz, you know, yes, no, does he? Doesn't he? I don't know. I, think I don't he, think he I think he, he, does, he pays but I'm as much sure. attention to the team's classification as he does to, to the, the quality of his sleep or, yes. his, or his recovery my, score. My... My um, recovery score today, I have my watch in Italian, and it's pessimo. The word, awful, awful, awful it said. Yeah, I could have told you that, though. I mean, I can <laughs> tell just by looking in your eyes. Um, I, mine's much better today, since, since you ask. I've, I've bounced back, Daniel. Obviously, a Grand Tour rider. Um, 
we've been talking a bit about DSM. I spoke to one of their riders this morning. He was resplendent in the King of the Mountains jersey, Michael Storer. Whether it's on loan or whether he'll wear that all the way to the finish will be decided tomorrow. Um, but he's won two stages, of course, at Michael Storer, Michael Mick Storer, as he's been christened by the Glenmarnock Wheelers, the organisers of the Drummond Trophy, which is uh, one of the great races that he's won in Scotland. He he lived in Scotland. We we claim him as Scottish. We 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 can there can be some fairly tenuous links that encourage us Scots to claim people. Is as there a um, does is, does an instrument exist in sort of traditional Scottish paraphernalia? Something like a shoehorn, but to, <laughs> in order to to fit someone with a kilt, we put a to, kilt on it. We can put, we put a kilt on it on anything. Um, anyway, I wanted to clear this up, Daniel. Just how Scottish is Michael McStorer, and I asked him about this this morning. Michael, you've been claimed by Scotland, uh, but we better clear this up. How long exactly did you live in Scotland? I spent two periods of, I think, about four months there. A bit on and off, but yeah, I was there for a good period of time in 2018. Uh, let me think. End of 2017 into 2018, then end of 2018 into 2019. In Glasgow, is that right? Yeah, in Glasgow, because my girlfriend was studying there. You still hold the Strava record up the Crow Road. Was that a regular training road? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I really like that climb. Also tried to get the Takmadoon, but it wasn't fast enough, or I didn't have enough tailwind. And, I mean, what you were a professional rider at the time, obviously. What was it like being a professional rider there and training and also travelling? Was that a practical place to live? Actually, Glasgow's a really great place to live. The only problem is the weather, but I'm lucky to have good clothing. So, yeah, when you got the some of the best clothing in the world, you can also handle uh, some of the worst, worst weather. <laughs> Um, you also raced there, a race I know well, the Drummond Trophy, you won that. You know, when you look at your palmarès now, two Vuelta stage wins, the Drummond Trophy, which ranks are higher? Oh, surely the Drummond Trophy is definitely high up there. <laughs> and you're in the King of the Mountains jersey now. Again, I'm sure the training on the Crow Road was a good foundation for that. Do you fancy holding on to this jersey now? I think, yeah, the, the goal is to keep it in the team. Like, if I if I have a bad day, I hope uh, Roman can pick up the extra points we need because there's still, yeah, uh, mainly Primoz Roglic is quite close. I don't think he's targeting the jersey, but if on the last day he picks up some extra points, he could take it away from us, so. We'll see you in a kill on the podium in, uh, uh, at the finish, do you think? If you hold on to the King of the jersey? Oh, I don't know. You'd have to supply me with one. <laughs> okay, we'll do our best. Finally, Michael, two other days that look like they might they might suit you. Um, today and tomorrow, is there is there a stage that you prefer the, the look of? Uh, I must prefer tomorrow. Today, the finish, the last 30 kilometers are flat. Yeah, it really doesn't suit my abilities. But yeah, we'll say today is really anything could happen. It's actually going to be an exciting state to watch. Well, that was Michael Storer speaking very, um, very positively, I thought, about Scotland. He still, as I mentioned there, holds the record for the, the Crow Road. The, the other climb he mentioned that he wanted was the Takmadun, a, fa- a very famous climb in Scotland. Um, the, the fastest man up there is actually um, a rider called Callum Johnson, who was riding for uh, Caja Rural development team, I believe. I, I think he's still in Spain, but uh, Storer only seventh on the all-time rankings. 
uh, for the Crow Road, he's still first. 11th of May 2018, Cameron Mason, very good rider also, in second there. So yeah. you hold that for a while. So it's, yeah, it's great. Great to hear Michael Storer so enthusiastically Who was he riding for in Scotland? The Crankies. He was riding for Sunweb. <laughs> Team okay. Sunweb. Um, anyway, another rider I want He's less Scottish than me, so... <laughs> another... Yeah, but he's better at cycling, so we'll have him. Uh, another another uh, rider I wanted to speak to this morning was Yuki Arashiro, Japanese rider on Bahrain Victorious, um, who is riding his 15th Grand Tour, and he was very visible yesterday because he did an awful lot of work for the team. He's part of a very, very strong team of course um, here um, and he's always been a, a team rider you know a really familiar face my, one of my abiding memories of Arashiro actually was in Andorra at the Vuelta in 2019 when there was that freak storm do you remember a hailstorm it was terrible weather up at the, the summit and the riders were being kind of rushed off the mountain and two riders stood back to let members of the public including children onto the cable car coming back down Edval Bosenhagen and Arashiro and both of them were very good humoured and helpful and genuinely seemed concerned about people other than themselves which I thought was not rare but um, showed reflected very well on them both. Rich my abiding memory of Arashiro is from yesterday from about 24 hours ago when he was doing about 1200 watts in the last yeah. hundred meters of yesterday's stage panicking thinking that he was going to be outside the time limit i think well, he had a fair amount of time to that's to the other thing i mentioned as well he's he's finished every grand tour he started which is also quite a record now i messaged our friend ed pickering editor of pro cycling magazine because ed is a bit of an aficionado of all things japanese well, you need to put a kimono on it you call <laughs> ed. A kimono on it. so um he, he did confirm Arashiro, but is by far the, the most established uh, Japanese rider in Grand Tours. Um, Beppu has been around a few years as well, and they rode the 2009 Tour together. They both sort of claim to be the first Japanese rider to finish the Tour. Uh, Beppu was higher up on GC, but Arashiro cleverly finished higher on the Paris stage, says Ed. Um, he's sent me the list of a few. It's, it's a handful of riders have ridden Grand Tours, but Ed told me that if I want to look really clever... Remind your listeners that Arashiro is from Okinawa. Okinawa. Okinawa, which is a chain of tropical islands 400 miles south of the main islands. I believe, says Ed, the locals perceive themselves as Okinawan first and Japanese it's, second. It's also one of the blue zones. Do you know what the blue zones are? Um, these areas that have a, a much higher than average and in fact well one of the highest percentages in the world of of centenarians people that live to over 100 years of age um and i i forget whether there's a correlation as well with happiness scores in the blue zones but um yes yeah, it's, it's well known for that well i think arashiro is 36 now so he could be uh, he could do a few more grand tours he certainly wants to carry on although he's out of contract at the end of the year yeah he's 36 37 in september anyway spoke to him at the start this morning I was looking at the statistics. This is your 15th Grand Tour. Yeah. I guess that must be a record for a Japanese rider, is it? Uh, yes, exactly. So me and the first rider finished the uh, first Grand Tour also. So 15 is, uh, I think, record. <laughs> it must be satisfying for you to have that record. And what does it mean to you to, to be the Japanese rider who's ridden the most Grand Tours and has been the most established professional, I suppose. Almost nothing, no? Maybe me now and the first rider from Japan, but uh, in the future, many like a Colombian 
yeah, one Colombia yeah. live, but yeah. I brought my band. So Japan also Hopper and the young rider coming. Are there lots of young Japanese riders coming through? Can you see some talented young riders? Yes, exactly. One rider and uh, from uh, and under 23 in the Ajizuda team also. So some good uh, young riders have in Japan. You know, how, how well known are you in Japan? How much do people over there follow your career? I don't know, but uh, in Japan, many live in the race, every Grand Tour and uh, all classics, uh, I don't know, maybe 100 less in the live. So sure, many fans follow the cycling. And you rode the Olympic Games as well. What did it mean to you to compete on home roads at the Olympic Games? Uh, this is uh, special for me. Yeah? So all, all uh, sports, uh, not a spectator, but in the road race, you can see. Uh, because uh, not Tokyo, then out of the Tokyo in the finish. So many people coming and uh, support us. For me, it's a super nice one day. We saw a lot of you yesterday. Um, can you tell us you're part of a very strong team here? What's your What's been your job in this Grand Tour? Yeah, for me, it's a support for the le uh, leader from team. So, for example, to the now in the Gino and uh, Jack, uh, before and uh, Mikael Landa also. So just for the for me, the support of the leader, the leader of the team. Another statistic I should mention is you've never quit a Grand Tour. You've finished every Grand Tour that you've started. What's the closest you've ever come to not finishing, or or, or have you? Has that not not easy, but it, it must have been hard at times to finish Grand Tours. Yes, I have lucky also no big crash in the Grand Tour. So, but yesterday also live uh, finally five minutes and the time cut. So not uh, not easy every Grand Tour, different uh, Grand Tour. So just uh, I finish uh, lucky also, and uh, I have legs also. Well, we saw the, yesterday though you you did a lot of work because your team missed that break. So you you've done a lot of work. So in doing that work, you maybe did endanger your chances because it must have been quite hard to make the time cut. Yeah, exactly. But this is my job. So the team have a mission. I do the mission. And finally, will we see you in the peloton next year as well? Because I noticed you're, you're out of contract at the end of the year. Are you going to be back next year? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, that was Yukia Arashiro. Set to finish his 15th Grand Tour on Sunday in Santiago de Compostela. Daniel, we are in Galicia. Galicia Galicia? Galicia, yeah. Galicia. Galicia. Very interesting region, Rich. A little bit of a backwater in terms of Spanish cycling. Of course, you know, if you imagine Spain, we're up in the far northwest corner. Um, it's got a, a long coastline, Atlantic coastline, Galicia. Speak a, not what's not a dialect, but an actual a different language from Spanish up here, Gallego, and very like Portuguese, a lot of the place names are very Portuguese sounding. Tomorrow, Rich, for example, we finish in a place called Moss, um, birthplace to Oscar Pereiro, my sometime laundrette buddy, um, who, who knows, we might we might catch up with him tomorrow, but, but the... This region has a well, it has an interesting, as I said, not a, a terribly rich heritage compared with other regions of Spain in terms of cycling. Volta Galicia was was founded in two years before the Vuelta a España. Uh, it was a stage race. It went on until well 2000 as a pro race, and since then has been an, an amateur race. But it was won by in, uh, Miguel Indurain in 1995 and Frank Vandenbroek in 98, Andy Hampston in 1993. 
other illustrious Galicians who have graced the peloton in the last few decades Alvaro Pino um, won the Vuelta a España in 1986 Marco Serrano remember him used to ride for Once uh, Liberty Seguros and it's very beautiful isn't it Rich I talked the other day about the different shades of the northern regions of Spain today we we entered Galicia shortly after the start and we saw these beautiful sort of towering eucalyptus trees um, covering the mountainsides. The mountainsides that the peloton will see a lot of tomorrow because it's a really interesting stage. And um, this was a stage that we thought if Primoz Roglic didn't extend his lead on general classification could spell a bit of trouble for him. Now just looking at the, the data for tomorrow's stage, 4,307 meters of climbing, that is almost as no in fact it's it's more than the it's it's many more than the lagos de corredonga stage it, it's liege baston liege i mean yeah. it, it is almost exactly but it with less distance Two, uh, 202 kilometers yeah. still so, one of the longest stages you know, of the vuelta yeah. in fact it might be the longest no the second longest joint and uh, an uphill finish as well a lot of climbing towards the end some nasty descents it should be really interesting very different. I mean, the the mountains here are, are are less big, but it's more. It feels more rugged and less developed than anywhere else in Spain I've been to before. Um, and certainly, the weather here can be can be pretty bad. It, it's lovely at the moment, actually, and I think the forecast is okay for tomorrow and Sunday. Um, but it's it's very kind of. Uh, it can be a, well there's a lot of rain here and it's very green and rugged and, and and also very rocky very like the highlands of scotland so it could well be a day for michael storer um as we heard earlier and rich tomorrow look, he fancies it. i'm looking forward rich tomorrow to the start in a place called san Chencho, which our friend andy hood has told us has been sort of colonized by rich madrileños it's become this sort of shishi galician uh, seaside hideaway for for the well-heeled of the of bigger Spanish cities. So I'm looking forward to that. Also looking forward to maybe tasting some Galician food tonight. We had an empanada gallega lunch, didn't we? Which is kind of, how would you describe a it? A very generous lunch. Um, yeah, it's almost... It's kind of like a Cornish pasty. It's like a, it's like a little flat pie, isn't it? Yeah. Like a pie that's been flattened by a mallet. With some fish or meat in it traditionally. I think fish is the most bonito, is the most traditional one. And maybe some caldo gallego, which is a traditional Spanish soup, but it's not really summer fare. Um, it's made with turnips, white beans, sausage, that kind of gear. A bit like fabada that we had in Asturias the other night. Which but is delicious, but but stays with you for a long time, doesn't it? <laughs> in some people's case. But it's feeling a bit more autumnal here in Spain, isn't it? Um, I mean, I remember well, we were shocked how cold it was at night in Burgos. And on mm. the hill above Burgos, I was going running in the morning. Some of the, the leaves were already turning um, slightly amber. And we've seen that in certain places over the last few days, haven't we? Well, it certainly has felt autumnal. Um, and it feels the, the sun here is a... It's a nice intensity. It's not burning. It's just warming your skin. So that's, I think, how it's going to be the last couple of days of this Vuelta. I, I don't think we're going to see a shock, are we? I don't think we're going to see an upset in the next couple of days. Um, I don't think so. I, I I think that the battle for the podium is just about still on. Yeah. Um, in the sense that... Well, with the time trial... Yeah, Superman... Superman would be vulnerable if he had a lead of five minutes. Superman has currently got 143... Um, one minute and f- 43 seconds advantage over Jack Haig and Egan Bernal is just he's seven seconds behind Haig 
So there is a possibility there, isn't there? With with what Super, yeah. Superman did, he had one forty over Richie Port before La Planche de Belfi, and that on paper was a time trial that suited him a lot better um, with the the, the climb. Uh, Sunday's time trial is longer. Um, Jack Hayes not as good a time trialist as Richie Port, but he's a better time trialist than Superman. So it could be actually very close between them. I would. But think. who could forget Richard Superman's astonishing time trial in the Volta al, uh, al Algarve in 2020, just last year when he finished fifth? How did he finish fifth? He beat Kwiatkowski, Lampard, Niels Pollitt, Geraint Thomas over 20.3 kilometers. How? I don't know, some, I think a steward's inquiry into that I think one. He, was he seen disappearing into a, into a phone box? An anomaly, I think. And I don't know donning his there. cape. I think, he maybe, I think they maybe got the numbers mixed up, didn't they? <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, um, we've got that to look forward to on Sunday. We're seeing an eco hotel tonight, Daniel. What? What? That's that's going to be fun. I may skip the start of tomorrow's stage. I think I'm going to take myself off to the the, the third stage of the, the women's race, the Saratizic Challenge, as it's now called. Um, stage three tomorrow, stage four on Sunday. Um, and uh, I might go and uh, do some interviews there for the Cycling Podcast Femina and meet up with you at the finish tomorrow. So just, to. just a bit of warning. Um, but we'll reconvene tomorrow night with all the news of what happens tomorrow and what should be. If, anything, if today is anything to go by, and with so many teams still looking for a stage win here, I think it'll be another humdinger of a stage, even if it is just for the stage. It's going to be a rip snorter. Before we go, Daniel... Can you give us a quick word on your Kilometer Zero, which I thoroughly enjoyed oh, thanks very much, uh, Rich. today. Um, well, it, it is about this pair of riders at Bora Hansgrohe who not only are riding their first major tour, but, well, in Anton Pouts's case, they'd never ridden a bike race until April this year. Ben Svihoff, the other one of them, was a mountain biker until a few months ago. It's been a bit of a, I wouldn't say ordeal, but it's been a fight to survive for both of those, which they've been successful in. It looks as though they're going to make it to Santiago de Compostela. And it's a little bit about how they got here to becoming professional cyclists and, and what the future might hold for both of those chaps. It's great. Listen, it's on the feed. You'll find it. It's today's episode of Clumps Zero. We'll be back tomorrow night. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Rich. 